Hey, thank you so much, Peyton. And man, what a blessing it is to be here. Pat has bragged about you for years, and uh, I couldn't wait to get here and to worship to see if he, he was lying or not, and, uh, but and he was not. You're incredible. I just want to say uh, thank you uh, for how you have loved my friend. Um, you've done an incredible job of loving him, and I know he loves you uh, because of the way he talks about you when he's away from here. And one thing I've always appreciated about Pat and our relationship, he's a straight shooter, as you know that. And uh, he throws you off. I mean, because when you meet him, uh, you know, he's very intelligent. He's a brilliant guy. He just hides it well. And, uh, <laughs> and uh, I, I just so love him. And if you're one of our, one of our guests today, I just want to beg you, please come back uh, when, when Pat is preaching, because I'm going to be real straight with you. Today is not going to be as good, all right? It's just not. But it will not be as long. I can promise you that. All right. So uh, we're going to be in Acts chapter 13, if you would. And I want like to talk about a living a life sent. Um, you talk about have, uh, have life and live sent. And today we're going to focus on that live sent. God placed you here for a purpose. He placed you to do more than just draw breath and draw salary. God placed you here for a purpose and to live sent. Hey, as you turn to Acts 13, if it's okay, I'd like to uh, introduce my family just real quick to you, okay? It relaxes me a little bit, and so you kind of know my context. Uh, I'd like to throw a picture up here. I didn't bring them all because there's just way too many. But uh, I have uh, my wife, Lynette. We've been married almost 37 years. And then we have six kids and seven grandkids. If you start counting, they're not all there. We only put the cute ones in the picture. And uh, I'm just kidding. Some are just born. We haven't updated it yet. So, But we have six kids. Uh, our oldest uh, two daughters are on each end. And one has four children. One has three. And then our oldest son is in the back with his uh, sweet new wife, Jordan. They actually live in Mount Juliet, not far from here. And then uh, God blesses us with the second phase of kids that we adopted. We have so thankful to have Livy. We got her when she was one from China. And she's now uh, oh, 20 and is a junior in college, first year of pharmacy school. And then Michael Lynn, we got her from Ethiopia. We got her when she's three, and she's now 18, and she's a freshman in college. And then we got JM. We got JM from the Philippines when he was 12, and uh, he's now uh, 22. And so we have six kids from four different countries. And it's real funny, when, when, I, when I speak in the South so often, they'll say, well, bless your heart, you know? And I'll say, no, no need to bless my heart. I'm just very competitive. Uh, I mean, look, we have six kids from four different countries. When we watch the Olympics, we win. All right, we do. <laughs> And so when we went to get uh, JM in Manila, uh, they, they told me, they said, be very careful with him because uh, he's not used to some of the same luxuries you had in the States. And of course, I'm like, luxuries? You got us mixed up with somebody. What do you mean luxuries? He said, no. Um, we, they found JM wandering the streets when he was around five. And then they took him to the orphanage. He was there until 12 when we got him. And so he knew English, unlike the other two that we adopted, he knew English, but they said he, he basically had a sink baths. He not had, um, you know, he didn't know what hot water, he didn't feel hot water, he just had sink baths. 
And so they said, just be careful so he didn't harm himself when you go back to the hotel. So I said, okay, no problem. So we go back to the hotel. You can imagine your first night with your new family in a hotel. You've been in an orphanage for seven years. It's like, man, we are going to partay, you know? And so he's all fired up getting to bounce on the beds and all that kind of stuff. And it came time for bath time. And I said, hey, JM, come here, buddy. I want to show you something. And so I'm, all right, we go into the bathroom and I turn on the water lukewarm. And then I said, hey, buddy, let me have your hand. And he gives me his hand. I put his hand underneath that lukewarm water. And then I, I just gradually, gradually turn the water warmer and warmer and warmer until he feels hot water for the very first time. And he says, that is wonderful. I was like, it is wonderful. You're going to love it. Now I'm going to do, I'm going to go in there and you hop in the shower and, and I'll never get it. He goes, shower, what's a shower? And, and you know, it's those things you don't think of. You have to explain, like I, I explained to him a shower right here. It's, you know, how do you do that? You know, it's like, it's water from heaven. You're going to love it. You know I mean? How do you do that? It, it's, we take so, so many things for granted. We're spoiled. You're spoiled. We're spoiled rotten. I mean, you know, like, like, uh, I remember the first time we went out to eat at a restaurant He's so used for so long. He just would eat whatever they put in front of him because that's how you did it there. But then when you go to a restaurant and you got a menu and options, it just kind of overwhelmed him. He goes, I don't, I, I don't know what to do. I don't know what to do. I said, no problem, no problem. Look, I'll order for you. It's not a problem. I said, just bring him chicken fingers. <laughs> he goes, no, I don't eat chicken fingers. And I went, no, 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 son, they're not chicken fingers. I mean, that's just what they call them. He said, well, why did they call them that? I, I don't know. Just dip them in barbecue sauce. It'll be okay. <laughs> you can only imagine the first time we had buffalo wings. Oh, my word, you know. <laughs> but I'll never forget. He went in there, took that shower, came back out 40 minutes later, all shriveled up, smelling good. <laughs> and still to this day, appreciates hot water. Why? Because he didn't have it. I say all that because, you know, let's just be honest. We all pretty are, we are pretty spoiled. You're not really concerned if you're going to have lunch today. It's just what you're going to have. And even when it comes to hot water. Hey, sir, uh, what's your first name? Yeah. Sammy? Uh, Samuel? Okay, Samuel. Sorry to, sorry to wake you up, Samuel. Uh, hey, <laughs> give me two or three minutes. You can go right back to sleep. Is that a problem? No, I'm kidding. I'm teasing. I'm just joking with you. Sam, I picked you, Samuel, because you look like the cleanest guy in that section. All right? So, all right, Samuel, be straight up with me, all right? You had a shower in the last two or three days. Okay, we're all happy about that. All right, be honest now, all right? When you had that shower and you felt that hot water, did you go like, yes, hot water? Did you do that? You, did, you, you didn't do that, did you? Yeah, right. You see, folks, Samuel, he's what's wrong with America, all right? <laughs> now, I'm joking sort of, Samuel, because uh, we all are that way. We don't fully appreciate certain things. And really, when it comes to churches, you don't fully appreciate. We just don't. We get so used to certain things. I want you to know, and you have a special thing here. I mean, you have, a, you have an incredible pastor and has a mission's heart. And Travis, man, the team leads in worship. Not all churches are like this. They're just not. And not only that, like this, there's not that many of these churches out there. And do you know what? In, in our family of churches, the majority of churches are in the South. Did you know that 84% of, the church, of, of, of our churches in our, our family of churches are in the ACC and the SEC? 
It's the other conferences that are going to hell and we've got to reach them, all right? But seriously, it's in the Northeast, the Midwest, West, and Canada. It's just not the case. Let me give you an example. In Mississippi, there's one church for every 1,400 people. Missiologists say you need a church for every 2,000 people of population if you're actually gonna reach a community. So in, in Mississippi, we're thankful they have that many and, and wish every state was like that. But you go to New York, it's one for every 90,000. You go to Canada, it's one for every 100,000. And that's why there's a desperate need to have churches like this and typically gonna be a lot smaller than this because again, in Boston and LA and those places, there's nowhere to accommodate a church this size. But I wanna show you something you may not be aware of. Because you continually give every Sunday, you give and a portion of that goes, as you know, you plant your campuses and that's an incredible thing to do right here. But you also are helping plant churches all over North America. Let me show you what you've done in this last 10 years. Back in 2010 in DC, these are the churches, the dots represent church plants in 2010. Here's what DC looks like in 2011, I mean 2021. If you look in LA, LA in 2010, those are the church plants. And then you look at what it looks like in 2021. Now the whole idea is to plant churches that plant churches that plant churches. And that's what Acts 13 is all about. The early church, the church of Antioch was about planting church. They were about sending people out. What's interesting, so often churches look at success as the seating capacity. How many do you seat? How many do you run? They're talking about how many people you can get in this box. How many you can get in here? Well, the New Testament's not like that. It actually keeps score a different way. It's not how many you keep, it's how many you send. And they sent them off in Antioch, all right? So let's look, Acts 13, stick with me, and uh, let's just walk through this passage, all right? Acts 13, starting in verse one, says this. Now there were in the church at Antioch prophets and teachers, and it lists several of them there. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, set apart for me Barnabas and Saul. Now what happens in the New Testament, he eventually changed his name to Paul. And so I'm gonna to refer to him by Paul, okay? Barnabas and Paul, who later become, I'm Saul, who later become Paul, for the work to which I have called them. Then after fasting and praying, they laid their hands on them and help me with these last three words. They what? All right, that was not good enough. Look, I know yesterday was a tough day for many of you that watch college football, but let's just get over it and move on, all right? The last three words, ready? Here we go. Sent them off. That's important to remember, to send them off. They sent them off. First thing I want you to see, to live a life on mission, you have to understand that you're being sent. You're being sent. You are being sent. You're in a very dangerous position because you attend a church like this and it says find life and be sent, live sent. They live that out. You can be a part of a church that does it and not do it yourself. What I want you to see today is let's just draw a circle, get down in that circle and say, okay, look, I wanna make sure I am squared away here. I am living sent. So in order to be sent, now in this verse, when it said they sent them off, what did that mean? They laid their hands on them. They prayed you thinking, well, they're ordained. That's not it at all. They're not ordaining them or anything like that at all. No, no, no. What they're saying, look, as you go, we go. We got your back. You're gonna go and you're, they're gonna go on the first missionary journey. They're gonna go and plant churches. And as you go, we got your back. 
you go on our behalf. They are living sin. And they celebrated doing what? They sent their very best. Sometimes churches, when they think about being sent or living sent, they want to send their very worst. You know, uh, the most difficult people in the church, most critical people in the church. It's just like, man, let's send them wherever we can send them. That's not the idea here. They sent the very best, Paul and Barnabas, and they sent them out. Look at the second thing. Being sent, but also being obedient. It's very important you understand the importance of being obedient. Look what the Bible says in the next verse. So being sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. They went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. And when they arrived at Salamis, they proclaimed the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. And they had John Mark to assist them. John Mark, and he actually went by Mark just for reference sake. This is the same John Mark that eventually writes the gospel of Mark, okay? So we'll come back to him later. It's important to make a note of that, but we'll not stay around there right now. Let's look at this. They were sent out by who? The Holy Spirit. Why is that important? It's hugely important. If you're gonna be obedient and you're sent out by the Holy Spirit, which the Bible makes very clear, and if, if you are a believer, if you know Christ in a personal way, then you, as a believer, are to live sin. And in doing that, you're to be obedient, sent out. You are sent out by the Holy Spirit. That means two things. When you're sent out by the Holy Spirit, the first thing you have to understand, your complete dependence upon the Lord. Complete dependence upon the Lord. And when you go through challenges and difficulties, as Pat and his family have, and as you as a church have, it reminds you real quickly how completely dependent upon the Lord we are. But we're to live every day understanding that the very breath that we breathe, God placed you here to do more than draw a breath and draw a salary, that you're completely dependent upon him. Lord, here's my iPad. Or if you're in old school, here's, here's my uh, legal pad. You fill it in. I'll go wherever, whenever, and do whatever. Be obedient. Completely dependent. Not only completely dependent, when you're led out by the Holy Spirit, that means you're also completely flexible. That means you may have a plan, but God may have a different plan than your plan. That's not wrong to have a plan. My kids make fun of me. I have a, a small dry race board in my office at home. And for each one of them, as they were growing up, I'd get that dry erase board out and I'd show them what the plan was. And I remember telling my daughters, see those, those, all the boys in your senior class? Yes, yes, Dad. None of them are your husband. Trust me, they're not your husband. <laughs> and then we're gonna go here, we're gonna go there. And I had a plan, I laid out a plan. You know what? Every one of them, every last one of them, we've been empty desk for about two months now. Every last one of them did not follow my plan. But at least we had a plan. And then we called some audibles. If you're connected to football, you know that simply means you go to the, you go to the play, you go to you the line of scrimmage with a play called. Something happened. Things have changed. And so we have to call an audible, a different play. This is not what we expected. We gotta do some things different. What you find throughout the book of Acts is they're going one place, something happens, and they're adjusted and they go a different way. That's just God saying, look, I appreciate your heart. I appreciate you wanting to be obedient. Now I'm gonna get you to, we're gonna go this way. We're gonna go that way. He gets it and he's got it. 
We just have to be completely dependent upon him and completely flexible and understand, man, God, I just want to follow you wherever. And man, when life throws you curveballs and you've been thrown one and there'll be others to come. But when life throws you curveballs, you have to adjust. So obedient. So when you live sin and you live obedient, there's going to be challenges. Some people's theology have like if you, if you serve the Lord and you do what you're supposed to do, when you're supposed to do it, everything works out really smooth. Just everything falls in place. I mean, we really must be doing things right. It all, it's just that's their theology is if you just one plus one equals two. That's not how this works. Not biblical math. When you live sin and you're obedient, there are absolutely going to be challenges. You just have to prepare for them and know that they're coming, you're in the midst of them, or you're looking at what you already have experienced. But they're going to happen. You know what's interesting, though? Is they happen outside the fellowship and they happen on the inside of the fellowship. To me... Um, outside the fellowship challenges, those are easier to deal with because you should anticipate the fact that, man, the world does not love what we do. They don't agree with the gospel and the fact that we want to live a gospel focused life. They don't understand that. So there's going to be challenges on the outside. Some of the hardest challenges are something you have to deal with on the inside. When you people in your, in your church or in your small group or in your family, even Thursday brings stress to some of you because you got to deal with so-and-so for a few hours, you know? Sometimes the people closest to you can cause the biggest challenge. And all I'm saying is there's potential. You're going to have challenges outside and you have challenges inside. That happened here. Let's look at it real quick. You ready? Here we go. When they had gone through the whole island as far as Paphos, they came upon a certain magician, a Jewish false prophet named Bar-Jesus. He was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, a man of intelligence who summoned Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. This was kind of like the governor at that point. And he's like, he had heard about what Paul and Barnabas had been teaching and wanted to hear more. But Elymas, the magician, opposed them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. His chief of staff, or his consultant, if you would, went to him and said, look, I know you want to hear more about Paul and Barnabas, but back, 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 back. Let's not get too quick here. Look, there's some unintended consequences. You get, you get mixed up with those guys, I mean, I'm telling you, that's a slippery slope. So let's back up, pause. And then what he proceeded to do is tell them things that were not true. He took a little bit of truth and mixed a whole lot of error in there and started perverting the ways of the gospel, if you will. We know that because the apostle Paul later confronts him and says, why do you make complex the simple things of the gospel? Why are you adding to the narrative, if you will? Why are you putting things in there that aren't part of it? You're trying to complicate it. It's a simple message. And Paul took care of him and eventually was able to share with the governor. But my point is this, expect challenges on the outside but also on the inside. You know, what's really ironic about this particular story is Paul and Barnabas went on the first missionary journey. If you read Acts 13, 14, 15, you'll see all that. They go on the first missionary journey and then, um, as I said, right after Cyprus, and then John Mark, he misses his mommy. He kind of pansies out and goes home. 
And by the way, Mark is Barnabas's nephew. That's why his soft spot's there. And so, but he goes home. Meanwhile, Barnabas and Paul continue on in the mission trip and do the heavy lifting and all the hard stuff. And then they come back to Antioch and they give a report to the church of Antioch about how everything went. And they took a little break, kind of recouping, refreshing a bit. And then this happens. Boom, 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 boom. Look what I said. That was supposed to be a little dramatic effect there, all right? <laughs> After some days, Paul said to Barnabas, let us return and visit the brothers in every city where we proclaim the word of the Lord and see how they are, see how they're doing. See how the, all those churches we planted, let's just check up on them and see how they're doing. Now, Barnabas wanted to take with them John called Mark. But Paul thought it best not to take with them the one who had withdrawn from them in Pamphylia and had not, what's this, had not gone with them to where? To the work. Now, you don't, don't miss that, all right? Paul's like, Barnabas, you want to take John Mark, little wimp? I mean, I know he's your nephew, but for crying out loud, he went to Cyprus. Now, look. If you do a little background study on some of these places, one of the first places they went was Cyprus. Cyprus is like the Bahamas for crying out loud. It's like missions in Hawaii. And so sure, why wouldn't Mark wanna go to the Bahamas and and, uh, be a part of what they're doing? He went to all the nice places. Then when it got hard, he bailed. That's why Paul says he didn't go to the real work. He just went to the the nice places and not the heart. Well, you can tell, look, Paul has held this in as long as he's gonna hold it in. We know that because of this next passage. Look what it says. And there arose a sharp disagreement so that they separated from each other and Barnabas took Mark with him and sailed away to Cyprus. But Paul chose Silas and departed, having been commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Now, it says there was no sharp disagreement. You know what that means? They were extremely ticked. So much so that you have a, not a church split, but a missionary split here. And basically, Paul says, kid's not going. Barnabas says, oh, yes, he is. Paul says, no, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. Yes, he is. No, he's not. All right, you want him to go? You take your little nephew and you go that way. Silas, come on, you go with me. We'll go this way. And they did. Well, this is awkward. Can you only imagine the two conversations? I can imagine Paul just giving it to Silas all the way down the road. Man, I I love Barnabas. You know I do, Silas. I love him. And I know he's the encourager, but my work. I mean, sometimes he follows his heart and not his head. I can only imagine that conversation. What I really like to be is in that conversation over here with uh, Mark and Barnabas. Barnabas is the encourager. I'm sure he puts his arm around his nephew and says, hey, Mark, man, don't sweat it, buddy. Look, I know that was ugly back there. Everything's good. All right, it's all all good. I'm sure Mark probably said, look, Barnabas, Paul's right. I mean, I did everything he said I did. I wimped out. I didn't do the hard stuff. He's right. I'm a loser. 
Notice your barber says something like, hey, Mark, you messed up. But you know what? We serve a God of a second chance and a God of a third chance and a fourth chance. I believe God has something he wants to do in your life, Mark. Who knows, Mark? You may even write a book one day. Insert laughter here. All right. That was, and he does. My point is this. Look, God can use even the challenges and work those things together for the good. But when you're lived sent and you're obedient and you encounter challenges, it's hard, it's tough, it's difficult. It's not a time to pull over and pause. It's not a time to pull in the rest stop and not move on. What it's really time for is you stay faithful and focused to the finish. And that's the fourth point. Live sent, being obedient, being sent, being obedient, being challenged, but fourth, being faithful and focused to the finish. God expects us to be faithful and focused to the finish. I know things are hard. You're going through a hard stretch right now, but that's why he says in his word, he'll never leave us or forsake us. That's why he says he'll walk with us through valleys, I appreciate one, one pastor who went through an incredible, devastating uh, time as you're going through and said, it's the most life gut-wrenching thing I've ever gone through. But I praise God I'm walking through the valley, not wallowing in it. Don't you see it? I said, give yourself time. It's a grief, but walk through it. Don't wallow. Walk, don't wallow. That's what happened with Paul and Barnabas. They went through a difficult time, but they stayed focused. Look at this next verse, how you could stay faithful and focused. It says, let it be known to you, therefore, brothers, that through this man, forgiveness of sins is proclaimed to you. You know what he's saying? Through this man who? Jesus. Forgiveness is available. Through it all, people are not perfect. Life can smell at times and there are curveballs, but in the end, Good or bad, there's repentance in one and one only, and that's Jesus. Paul understood he needed to be faithful and focused to the finish to make sure people understood the gospel regardless of what backgrounds they're coming from. Now, I want you to notice something about this, though. The Apostle Paul, we think of the Apostle Paul, I mean, he's the greatest missionary, obviously apart from Jesus, but the greatest missionary, but... Paul has, it built up. I don't care who you are, challenges build up. And if you read Acts 13, Acts 14, Acts 15, Acts 16, Acts 17, you're gonna see he got ran out of certain places. He was thrown into to jail. I mean, it was rugged, rough. And even though he endures it and pushes forward, it built up on him. And at some point, I don't care how spiritual you are, at some point, you just get to the point of like, look, I know you've promised you wouldn't put more on me than I can handle, but just in case, I want you to know I'm there. I'm at the limit. I can't take any more. I am there. It's like the darkest point of your night almost. That's where Paul was. You know what's crazy about it is you read in Acts 18, good things were still happening, but he was feeling emptier and emptier more burdened and more burdened. So it doesn't mean everything's going bad. No, it was just in the midst of it. 
man, I'm like a shell here. I'm really, really, he was, he was scared. He was considering throwing in the towel. And then Acts 18, 9, and 10 happened. And it says that the Lord came to Paul in the darkest point of his night in a vision or a dream, same word, and says this. This is a point in my life where there are times when I've, I've quoted this to myself several times a day, and typically at least once a day. But I love this encouragement from the Lord to Paul, his faithful servant. Look what he says. He says, do not be afraid. Now, what's important to notice about that is in the Greek, it's actually written, it's Paul, stop being afraid. He's not telling Paul, don't be afraid. He's saying, you are afraid, stop it. Stop doing that. Stop being afraid. Why are you afraid? Don't, no, no need for you to be afraid. Stop being afraid, Paul. Paul was afraid. He knew better, but still was. So he's like, do not be afraid. And then second thing he says, but what? Go on speaking and do not be silent. Paul, stop being afraid. And you keep on speaking and do not be silent. You keep on talking, Paul. You keep on sharing the gospel, Paul, and you do not be silent. Do not quit. Do not shut up. You know what I love about that? There's two things he says to him. Do not fear and do not quit. Do not fear and do not quit. Can you say it with me? Do not what? And do not. One more time. Do not. And do not. No, Paul, you do not fear and you do not quit. That would just be a spiritual pep rally if you just left it there. You ever been to one of those? Those pep rallies the day before a game? Everybody's all fired up. <laughs> then you eat a few meals. and you get, It's a long time till the game starts, and it's like, oh, my word, I'm scared to death. You know? This is not a spiritual pep rally. What he's trying to say is, look, I, I'm in this long term. You do not fear. You do not quit. And then what does he say? This is so important to remember. For, I need you to read it with me. You ready? For. I am with you. One more time. For I am. I want you to think about that for a minute. For I am with you. Paul, stop being afraid. You do not quit. And the reason you don't have to be afraid, Paul, and the reason you're not ever going, you should never quit, is because I'm with you. I promise never to leave you, never forsake you. Not gonna happen. I got this, Paul. There are things you don't know that I know. You're afraid, but it ain't gonna happen. You wanna quit? No, not yet. I got more to do. Because I'm with you. Listen, if you could understand the I am with you part, really, truly understand, it'll change everything about your life if you'd really, really believe that part. We sing songs about it, but so often really don't believe it, that he is with us everywhere we go. And he's saying to Paul, I've got your back. I need to share something with you, just get off my chest and just be honest with you, okay? Uh, I'm married into Tennessee. My wife's from Dyersburg, Tennessee. We got married in Finley, Tennessee. And uh, so Tennessee's a, uh, kind of married into Tennessee, but I'm not from Tennessee. I'm from Kentucky. 
No, I'm a, that's right. I'm a Kentucky fan. Oh, you people in Tennessee, you know, y'all like football. And I, I get that. I appreciate that. In Kentucky, it's just not a thing. All right? Not be offensive to you. We're glad you like it. My brother-in-law's a big Tennessee fan, and I'm happy for him that he likes it. We don't care. In Kentucky, we got beat yesterday. We'd rather win, but we don't care. It's football. I grew up that way. I mean, in Kentucky, when a tornado comes, everybody runs to the football field because there's very few touchdowns there, all right? So, <laughs> dad joke, dad joke, all right. <laughs> but you get my point. In Kentucky, football's an appetizer. It's like the chips and dip, you know? I'll take a few chips and a little queso, but the main thing's about to come, that'd be basketball season. For us, basketball is everything, and it's already started. Man, but again, March is what matters. We just all focus on that. Now, I got married. I showed you to my wonderful wife, Lynette, back in 1985, December 28, 1985. We had our first marital. Remember your first marital disagreement? Not your small one, but the big one? Well, I do. Ours happened in March of 1986. Still celebrate today in something called March Madness, all right? We've been married just a few months, and I was watching Kentucky play uh, a tournament game in March Madness, and she said, hey, uh, I'd like to talk about, and she mentioned something we want to talk about, and I said, okay, can I wait till after the game? Which led her to say, well, is that more important than me? And I paused too long before I answered. <laughs> and, and, and then that led her into another itemization of a fault I have. She said, and another thing, when you do watch your games, you're too competitive. I said, too competitive? What do you mean? She goes, look, when we watch games, you yell at the TV. You're not even at the game. You think you're a coach. Remember, you yelled at the refs. I said, I don't yell at the refs. I'm just encouraging them to do better. <laughs> you yell at the players and you're scaring the dog. And I realized, you know, after a few weeks, she's serious. Like, this is a problem. And so I decided, you know, I'm not going to let anything like this, even though I love Kentucky Bath, I'm not going to let this come in between. So she here today, she would testify that this is the case. I don't watch games live anymore. I just don't. I just can't handle it. I really just can't handle it. That's childish. It may be. I'm childish. I can't handle it. I just get too involved. I just, I just I lose control. So I tape the game. You go, oh, I know what you do. You tape the game. You don't find out the score. Then you watch it by yourself. That's not what I do. I tape the game. I find out what the score is. And if we win, I watch it. <laughs> and if we lose, I delete it. So like Kentucky and football, we got beat yesterday by Georgia. I'll never see it. I don't care. I only watch games we win. Now, that will change your life. All right? Let me give you an example. There was a game a couple years ago. We were playing in the tournament, semis, quarters, playing Michigan. I'll never forget the game. We were down at halftime by 10 points. The announcers were negative, negative, negative. All this negativity. Was I concerned at all because they were being so negative? Kentucky would never come back and all this. That negative talk didn't bother me at all. Why? Because I know we win. 
You can be as negative as you want to be. Go ahead and yak, yak, yak. Bunch of, man, they're nutcases. We're going to win. We're going to make them look real foolish. Second half, we're down by eight with 10 minutes to go. Ooh, I'm not scared. Not in the least bit. I'm getting me another peanut butter and jelly from the, from the refrigerator. One minute to go. They have the ball and a two-point lead. Am I afraid? Not on your life. I'm petting my dog. My heart's not beating fast. I know what happens. 40 seconds to go. We steal the ball. We come down and we're passing it around. We're going to get a shot off. I bet we do. They throw it to a guy named Andrew Harrison. He hits a three-point shot. He shoots it with three seconds to go. Does it go in? It does. Every time. Now, I love that. And man, when I go home, I love watching those games. And it changes everything about the way I watch it when I know how it finishes. It takes all the anxiety away. You know how silly it would be for me to get all fearful and anxious if I already knew the score and we went? Well, if you come here at any time at all, you've read the word enough to know that we do win in the end. We do. And life can get a little ugly. Never promised us paved road. It said it could be some curveballs and some challenges along the way. But if you really live it, for I am with you, it's like living your life just like I watched those games. He's got this. And that's why he says to Paul, Paul, it's halftime. It's halftime, son. Don't be so fearful. We're not done yet. You're going to quit? If I were you, I wouldn't do that. Not yet. There's still more to come. And then I want you to notice the last part of this verse. Look what it says. For I have many in this city who are my people. And actually, in one version, it says, Paul, there are many people in this city that you know not of. You know what that means? Hey, Paul, I'm going to use you to reach people you don't even know yet. Paul, you have no idea all that I'm going to use you to do. I'll blow you away. That's why, remember the verse and the Bible says very real clearly, I'm going to do exceedingly abundantly more than you could ever ask or think. I'm going to blow your mind. There are many people in this city that you know not of. I just want to say to you, look, I know it's a hard time. I'm not trying to minimize that at all. I love, I love your pastor. He loves you. He's a foxhole type of friend. He's a foxhole type of pastor. Just need to give him some time. But I know you're hurting too, and then not just that, there's other challenges you may be going through. But we got to walk through the valley and not wallow in it. It's not going to glorify anybody, much less the Lord, if you wallow. You got to walk. And I just beg you. Because he said so. Don't be afraid. Well, what, what, what? Don't worry about it. Don't be afraid. 
and you do not quit. For he is with us. And there are many people in Smyrna and beyond, in Tennessee, in North America, and around the world. But I'm going to use you to reach. I want us to bow our heads. As we bow our heads, I want you to think about where you are in your own journey. Don't think about anybody else, not even a family member, you and your journey. There was an evangelist years ago that was asked, how do you start revival? And he said, oh, it's real simple. Simple? Oh, yeah, it's real simple. He said, uh, you take a piece of chalk, a piece of chalk, a piece of chalk. You go into a room all by yourself and you take that chalk and draw a circle on the floor and then get down on your knees in that circle and pray that God would start a revival in that circle. What he's simply saying is, look, you really need to take care of yourself first. And when it comes to living sent, being sent and being challenged, being obedient, being faithful and focused to the finish, my prayer is that each one of you in your circle and pray about how God could use you. Hey, it's Thanksgiving week. We have a lot to be thankful for. As you gather to be thankful as a family, but also sometimes there's a bit of anxiousness there and anxiety as different people come in, different past. And I want to encourage you to approach this time not out of a sense of fear and don't give up and don't try. I encourage you to use this as an opportunity for God to walk with you. It may be to mend, mend some bridges. It may be to share the gospel with someone who needs it. My prayer that you just be open and available and flexible to be used by God in any way. But why? Because you live sent. That's what that means. Ready to go wherever, whenever, whatever. I'm ready to live sent. Father, thank you for how you love us. You care for us. You know everything about us and you love us anyway. And Father, I pray that every person here would understand the, the need, the importance of living for you and to have a relationship with you. They find life in you, everlasting life in you. And then once they do, Lord, that they understand the importance of living sin. I thank you for how you care for us. You tell us to take all of our anxieties and cast them upon you. And Lord, we just dump those there today, not to pick them back up, completely give them to you. We thank you for how you love us in the hardest, most difficult times that we'd be faithful to you in them in Jesus' name. Our deacons today are going to find different places throughout the auditorium just as an opportunity. And we want to invite you. We're going to stand in just a second and sing a song. They do such a great job leading us in worship. So there's different ones located. They'll be glad to pray with you. Or sometimes if you're like, man, I just want to do it by myself. I know you can do it there in your seat. And you're welcome to do that. But sometimes it's just something about coming and saying, oh, Lord, I'm this serious. Maybe you come today, you pray for yourself. There's some, there's some fear in your life. 
challenge, tempted to give up on a relationship, a marriage, or all sorts of things that you could qualify. And maybe you know somebody who's going through that and you just today, as a testimony before the Lord, look, I just, I just bring them to you in this way. So I invite our deacons, those who are gonna come, if you just come forward now and stand here. And, and again, they're here and available if you'd like or you're welcome to, uh, to pray on your own. We want you, whatever it is you feel like God's leading you to do. And basically in a sense, we're asking you to draw your circle, get down on your knees in that circle and pray that God would start a revival in that circle. Would you stand with me? If God's leading you to pray, come and pray in any way. Come pray for yourself, for someone else. You do simply whatever God's asking you to do today as we sing this together. Would you do that? Let's do that now.